Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we'll be finishing up our look at We Can Build You, Dick's 1972 novel, which was written way back in 1962. Um, now, I don't know what led Philip Dick to to choose to publish this, this book uh, when he did. Uh, he probably just wanted a publication. Um, his last major novel was uh, Our Friends from Frolax 8, um, Maybe Maze of Death. I don't know which one was published first in that year. But he published two novels in 1970, Maze of Death and Our Friend from Frolox 8. And then he he didn't really uh, publish another novel until this one, We Can Build You. And then, he, then it would be another two years before he published really anything. And that would be Flow, My Tears, The Policeman Said, which is a novel we'll be looking at um, next after this, after this series. So I guess he just needed something to publish. And maybe he was trying to build off the... The success, the relative success of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, um, which this this can be looked at as kind of a prequel to it. But when you actually get down into this novel, it's it's not really fully a novel about androids. There's android issues in the novel, but none of it's very original. There are things Dick dealt with before. You know, way back into short stories. Of course, he's building off the stuff he wrote in the in the fifties and early sixties. It reads very much like one of his mainstream novels. Um, really just a, a normal guy having some kind of crisis in life, relationships, you know, family issues or whatever. Um, we'll be taking a closer look at a, a true mainstream novel, Confessions of a Crap Artist, in a little bit. Um, but uh, for now, let's just, let's just finish uh, talking about We Can Build You. Um, so what has happened up to this point? Well, uh, our narrator, Louis Rosen, who's part of this corporation company called Massa, which he runs with his friend, uh, Maury Rock, um, and their daughter, Pris um, Frauenzimmer, who is one of their main kind of designers, and then they have an engineer. Uh, they developed androids. They developed two kind of prototype androids, uh, a Stanton and an Abraham Lincoln simulacrum. Uh, they're quite successful, so they decide to try to market these, and they play with different ideas. Eventually, they reach out to a business person, Sam Barrows, and... Um, you know, he's interested, but instead of making a, a deal that's going to work for them, he, they, in fact, the Barrows co company poaches Pris and their engineer away from them. Uh, Massa tries to make it on their own, uh, kind of directly marketing to consumers, and they start to retool the factories to make nanny um, androids, nanny simulacrum. But Louis Rosen, increasingly obsessed with Pris, who he's fallen in love with, decides to go to Seattle to essentially threaten um, Barrows with a gun forcing Pris back into his life. Uh, this fails when he calls Barrows, when he calls Pris, and he calls other people. They all deem him essentially crazy, mentally ill. He turns for help from the Abe Lincoln simulacrum, and the Abe Lincoln, Abe Lincoln simulacrum tells him that maybe there's a way we can get under Barrows' skin by reaching out to one of his political enemies, Sylvia de, de, de Vorak. And that's where the novel the novel leaves off. So we have five, four chapters left to, to look at in this novel. 
uh, chapters 15 through 18. And we'll do that first, and then we'll just, I'll give my final thoughts about this, this, this novel. So chapter 15, um, he prepares to call Sylvia Dvorak to get an appointment to, to work with her. Basically, she's opposing Barrow's kind of rental schemes. Barrow's is a glorified slumlord essentially, who makes his profit off of the, the very tight rental market. Um, part of the context here is the, this, the beginning of exploration and settlement on other planets on the moon. It's set in 1982. He wrote this in 1962, published in 1972. So it's very contemporary. Everything feels very, feels, feels very contemporary, but there are science fiction elements in the simulacrum and in a little bit of overseas settlement or uh, uh, settlement in the, in the in the colonies on the moon in particular. So he meets with the, he he talks to the Sylvia Dvorak and he gets an appointment. Um, and so that's all worked out and, and nothing really comes of this meeting now. It's because other events are going to intervene to to prevent this from becoming a fully developed plot point. But basically, the scheme here is that she's really trying to investigate one of the housing projects that the Barrows company is after. And for whatever reason, that this, this never really comes to pass. Dick never fully develops this. But instead, while they're just waiting around for their next move, Lincoln talks Louis into going to a show. There's a musician, Earl Grant, who's kind of doing a concert at a restaurant, and Lincoln wants to go to a concert. And, you know, it's kind of an interesting idea here you know you're going with Lincoln to a show and of course Lincoln was assassinated at a show at a performance it's not the same thing same type it would have been too obvious I suppose if Dick had them going to the to the theater but the Lincoln simulacrum here really wants to to see a show right and he goes to the show at this concert but it's a public event it's the kind of place that Pris often shows up at so so on one level Louis wants to maybe run into her uh, Lincoln doesn't want him to run into to Pris, however. Lincoln actually has uh, a little bit of superstition about performances. And it seems, anyways, it seems they're having a nice little talk, a nice little evening out. And then Pris and Sam Barrows walk into the room and sort of everything changes. So they end up meeting with Barrows and Pris. And, and he has to, of course. He continues on his mission of trying to break up their, their relationship. Now we see that uh, Barrows gets the Pris treatment uh, throughout this. So Pris, who's so cruel and, and vicious to to Louis Rosen, it makes it really hard for us to understand why he's interested in her. He's like mid thirties; she's eighteen. She's mentally ill. She's cruel. Always insulting people, but people are sort of attracted to her and fascinated by her. I think a lot of this is Dick's projection of the type of woman he was attracted to. That's often the case with the, these types of characters. Um, but he even says to Barrows, who he's, she's, she's fascinated with, she actually upturned her life to take employment with Barrows. She says, you're a dirty, aging, middle-aged man who likes to peep up girls' skirts. You ought to be behind bars. You put it in me once too often. And I can tell you this. It's a wonder you can get up at all. It's so little and flaccid. You're just old and flaccid, you old fairy. And Barrows, who's rich and has a lot of women, just kind of, it just bounces off him. But, you know, she continually has this method of, with men, to, to basically insult them. Um, they talk about how they've been pursuing their, their business, Pris and, and Bundy, the engineer from, from Louis Rosen's old company. They've been working on simulacrums and, and how they've built a George Washington 
right? But then a, a simulacrum comes in who's a really horrible simulacrum from all accounts. Even Pris is not really proud of it, and, and she denies having much of a role in the building of it. It seems it's mostly the engineer. She's a designer. She, she kind of designs their minds and their, their programming and their facial features. and things like. She's more the artistic side of it. She's not the, the technical side of it. This one, it has technicals. I guess it works, you know, in terms of its of the technology, but it's a, a total failure from a design point of view. It doesn't even look like anything. Um, but it does introduce itself as, as John Booth, and it's it's quickly revealed that this is actually John Wilkes Booth, and Pris didn't design this, but it seems it was designed for the intention of actually assassinating the Lincoln simulacrum, which I find really quite hilarious. That, that Dick threw this in. Um, now, Pris is very insulted by this for a couple of reasons. One, it's such a low-quality, horrible simulacrum from a design perspective, but also it means to kill her greatest achievement, which in her mind was the Lincoln simulacrum. So um, when she realized that it was built to, to, to kill, to destroy the Lincoln, Pris then destroys the Booth simulacrum. I wish we would have got more from this Booth simulacrum and maybe a whole other uh, side quests going on with him maybe he really actually does try to try to assassinate the lincoln it would have been a lot of fun but uh dick just throws out the idea here and pris very quickly destroys the booth simulacrum um and then pris pris leaves the scene so th this is kind of the last uh really clear meeting between pris and 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 louis rosen that we have there, there's going to be other encounters that we can talk about but this seems to be the, the last true encounter they have and uh, they talk after Pris leaves about loss and from Ru Louis Rosen's point of view Barrow says loss like the greatest thing ever to lose Pris is is devastating and he should feel worse than he is but it, it's almost like the, the perspective of the rich is and this particular character Samuel Barrows is that he could just get another woman so he doesn't have this feeling of loss that he he has he's just like you know you know I don't really care too much but he, we see how obsessed he is with Pris and how he kind of reduces everything to does one control Pris or not. And that's really when it comes down to it, the really creepy aspect of Louis' character here is throughout the novel, he's trying to possess this Pris uh, character. And he thinks he's like this charming knight in shiny armor coming to save her from, from Barrows to send her on her way, giving her advice all the time. He doesn't actually ever listen to what she's saying. He, he just kind of just just talking in the background. It's a very dysfunctional relationship, um, really mostly a, a function of his own imagination that she has any attraction to to him at all. There was one moment where they almost had sex, but it, it seems from her point of view, it wasn't about emotion at all. Just, you know, she was just going to do it to do it. Um, so, you know, it's, it's like the sickness of unrequited love throughout this. And, and once again, you know, when Rosen sees the loss of, of, of Pris is so much greater than the loss of the Wilkes, John Wilkes Booth simulacrum or any business deal or money or anything else. Now, later on in this scene, Louis is forced to help actually drag this Booth simulacrum out into the car and you get another kind of humorous scene where they're dragging this body and <laughs> trying to get him into this, this car to drag him away because they essentially have a dead body at this, at this, at this restaurant. Um, now, later on, he decides he's going to go and pursue Sue Pris. So he, he looks around for where she might be. And the place he ends up going is, is Nild's 
house. Nild's like the secretary, Barrow's secretary. She's like a minor character in the novel. Um, but she, it's her house that he ends up going to, thinking that's maybe where Pris would be. And in fact, when he goes there, it's Barrow's and, and Nild and, and the lawyer for the Barrow's company. They're all there like having drinks in the, in the parlor when he comes in. And they kind of, they say, well, there's someone waiting for you in the, in the bedroom. And he goes in thinking it's going to be Pris, and it's his father who has arrived in Seattle, desperately worried about about um, Louis, trying to encourage him to go seek mental health care. Um, really, if you go back to chapter thirteen, pretty much everyone in his life, it's crystal clear to them that that Louis Rosen is is totally nuts by this point in the in the story. So his father's there to help him, but it's while he's talking to his father that he begins to have this. Uh, fantastic this this fantasy that he's with Pris and her father's there and he actually has a psychic he, he essentially in his mind makes love to Pris and no one you know and it's all in his it's all in his mind it's a total delusion so the last four or five pages of this chapter are this conversation he's having with Pris which culminates in him seducing her having sex with her and in between his conversations with Pris, he hears the, you know, what his father's saying and what Barrows and others are saying. But he's completely, like, into this delusion of, of Pris. And that's how the chapter ends. Um, and then we get to chapter 17 and 18. And these chapters, the, the end of the novel is set almost exclusively in mental health clinics. He essentially wakes up uh, with Dr. Horwitzki, who they've, you know, after this kind of psychic breakdown that Louis has had, his father, Chester, his brother, take him to back to Boise to see the doctor. The doctor looks him over and suggests he, you know, he gets, he actually goes to a more serious federal clinic. And they go there and he goes, you know, he gets a consultation with a man named Dr. Nisea. Dr. Nisea, who uh, works in the government agency that's responsible for collecting all these mentally ill people. And so he's actually at the Federal Bureau of Mental Health is where he goes. And while there, he gets all the testing, all the diagnosis. And it's a whole long, it's a whole process in which he, he, his illness is diagnosed by this Dr. Nisea. They do all the kind of standard psychological tests. Now, one interesting test they give is they, they give a cliche. And the cliche here is a rolling stone gathers no moss. And then the patient's job is to interpret what this, what the meaning of this cliche is. Now, normally, I think we, that's I interpret this as, as, you know, encouraging you to have an active and vibrant lifestyle, right? To, to stay in one place, you know, you, you kind of get old and decrepit, right? So always be active. And that's kind of how Louis ends up interpreting it. But he has to go back and forth. He thinks of it in different ways. And this apparently is the wrong interpretation. The doctor says, the generally accepted meaning of the proverb is the opposite of what you've given. It's generally taken to mean a person, and then Louis breaks in knowing the answer, a person who's unstable will never acquire anything of value. Which, again, so the moss is something valuable in the way these people understand this this, this rock. Um, and I, I don't know what's quite going on here. I think Dick has a real problem with the way mental health professionals kind of diagnose and interrogate and question people that they, they kind of shift the ground under underneath you and that's what's happening here right to to take a proverb and say there's an accepted meaning of it that you should accept if you're mentally 
if you're mentally healthy. Um, but if that meaning is kind of vague in the first place, that can be sh a ground under which the, it can be shifted, right? Because that's not, I don't think that's the accepted meaning of that proverb. Uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I've never seen it used that way in my, in my life. But the doctor here say, this is the proper meaning of it. And you don't accept that, or your first impression wasn't to accept it that way. Therefore, you're, you're crazy. Now, he's diagnosed as having some mental illness. So he said, Where, you know, we got to go to a clinic. You've got to you have to be institutionalized. And, and Rosen says he wants to go to the Kansas clinic, the Kazian Clinic in Kansas City, which is where Pris was when she was confined in, in a clinic. And we get, when they, the doctor asked him, why do you want this one? And he says, I know a lot of people who have been here. And he goes through this list of the people in his life who have been institutionalized. And it's a huge list. And, and it's just, again, we're reminded that this world that Dick's constructing here is, is populated almost entirely by insane people or people who have been institutionalized. And, you know, I, it's kind of a thing I wish he would have developed almost a little bit more because it's, it's so powerful and it's such a major theme of Dick's work is, is the, the idea of a sick society. He did it in Clans of Elfane Moon, but there was kind of an optimistic look at it because in Clans of Elfane Moon, the, the crazy people were free and they created their own society and it functioned. It was a functioning, you know, working society, maybe not ideal, not a utopia, but it was a functioning society. Every mental illness had its proper role, right? Remember the maniacs were the defense department, the schizophrenics were the creators and the teachers the uh hepaphrenetics were the uh, like the janitors everyone had their role in that society some were religious mystics and it, it sort of functioned it held together um but that's because they were free right in an institution it's a very different image and we've seen plenty of dick's criticism of, of the mental health institution we have the maze of death as a great example that we're going to see again in scanner darkly you know, the use, the criticism of the institution. And, and we'll come back to that issue, I'm sure. But just the, the sheer number of people who have gone through this system is, is staggering here. Quote, my Aunt Gretchen, who's at the Harry Stack Sullivan Clinic in San Diego, she was the first mentally ill person I knew, and there's been a lot since, naturally because such a large part of the public has it. And we're told every day on TV. There was my cousin, Leo Rogans. He's still at one of the clinics somewhere. My English teacher in high school, Mr. Haskins, he died in the clinic. There was the old Italian down the street from me who was on a pension, George Olivier. He had catatonic excitements and they carted him off. I remember a buddy of mine in the service, Art Boyles. He had Frenia and went to the Fromm Reichman Clinic at Rochester, New York. And there's Alias Johnson, a girl I went with in college. She's at Samuel Anderson Clinic in Area 3. That's at Baton Rouge, LA, Louisiana. And a man I worked for, Ed Yates, he contracted frenia and turned into acute paranoia. Walter Dangerfield, another buddy of mine, Gloria Millsteel, a girl I knew. She's, she's uh, God knows where, but she was spotted by means of a psych tech when she was applying for a typing job. The federal people picked her up. She was short, dark-haired, very attractive, and no one guessed until the test showed up. And John Franklin Mann, who a used car salesman I know, he tested out as a dilapidated phrenic and was carted away. And it goes on like this. Right. In fact, there's a whole law that's designed to find these mentally ill people and cart them away to these clinics. It's like the, you know, kind of like what prison does now, I suppose. So it's just it's just shocking. And we don't get this earlier. When you start the novel, you don't know you're in this world. And at the end, it's revealed that, you know, it seems most or a huge chunk of, of human humanity is being dumped into these clinics. 
um, as being mentally ill. And that's the sign, certainly, of a, of a sick society. I think in episode two in this series, I talked about my view of what Dick's trying to say about mental illness, that it is a, that mental illness is a function of a sick society, right? which I think was a common idea in the 60s when Dick was formulating his ideas about mental illness. So anyways, they, uh, he goes to the Kansas City um, clinic. And well, first he has like a dinner with Maury, he says his goodbyes to Maury, and then he's, he's, he meets a Dr. Albert Sheb at the Kasani Clinic in Kansas City, and that's where the rest of the novel is set. And what they do to him there is they, they focus on this relationship with Pris as the core psychotic episode he has, the, the heart of his, of his mental illness, his schizophrenia. Um, of course, that's the break he had, too, when he was imagining he was having sex with, with Pris. So what they do is they, they tie this down to his, his libido that needs like catharsis. So they create um, fugue states in which he kind of lives out fantasies in which he's married to Pris, has a relationship, maybe has a child with Pris. And they try different delusions that they, that they implant into his mind and let him experience. So throughout lot, much of the later part of the novel, he's imagining he's with Pris. Um, and having these conversations with Pris, where Pris is not who she, we've met in the novel. Who she, she's a good mother, she's a kind wife, all these different fantasies about, about Pris. Um, as these treatments go on, he becomes convinced that Pris is at the clinic with him, that she's been reinstitutionalized for whatever reason, and she's in the clinic. He asks, where's Pris Fraunzimmer? And, the, and there's no one by that name. So we think, he actually at one point has a conversation in the real world, quote-unquote real world, where we think he's actually run into Pris. But when they ask, where's Pris? You know, is there something by that name here? There's no one by that name at the, at the hospital. And then eventually he figures out, maybe she's under the name like Rock, Pris Rock or Pristine Rock, her, her birth name, not the Frauenzimmer name she took for herself. And they find, he finds that there is someone named Miss Rock and he meets her. And that's how the novel essentially ends. But we still don't know if we're really in Louis Rosen's delusions or not. The the last couple chapters are, you know, it's, it's a really good Philip K. Dick ending in that we have a ambiguous reality, but it's grounded in the fact that this character is, is mentally ill. It's not like Ubik, where it's just like a big question mark that he leaves you with and says, you know, you know, interpret it however you want. You know, whether he's delusional or not, it, in a way it may not matter because he's living out these lives at the Pris having these conversations with her. Pris is in his life through his treatments. But, you know, it's very likely that Pris is back in the clinic. You know, we know that she's not fully cured from whatever, you know, mental illness she has. She has all sorts of problems, right? But, you know, it's, at the end of the day, we're really in Rosen's mind and we can't know for sure what's real or what's not. Um, so that's, that's the novel, uh, We Can Build You. So it starts out, we think we're getting a story about uh, the development of androids and maybe a prequel to Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? You know, the beginning of the Rosen Corporation. We think we're getting a novel about the ethics of, of you know, enslaving androids and all this stuff. But, you know, ultimately this is, this is going to be a novel about, this is a novel about mental illness. And that's what the second half, or the last third of the novel tells us. That we're really in, in a case study of a man you know, as his mind is deteriorating around him through this obsession he has for this, this young woman. 
So that's uh, We Can Build You. That's my, my basic survey of, of what goes on in this novel. So do you want to read this book or not? I, I think if, if you're a Dick fan and you're interested in the question of, of mental illness and psychotherapy and Dick's attitude towards it, you got to read this book along with Clans of the Alphine Moon and A Scanner Darkly to really get at his image of the institution. I think that's one of the most powerful elements of the story is the last half where everything becomes surreal and and reality fades, but it's that reality fades because we're in this institution that's actively creating false realities for him constantly, right? Uh, maybe we can go through and say he's, you know, a lot of what maybe, you know, like his encounters with Pris are certainly shaped by his delusions and his feelings of love for her and, and all that. But it's, it's really at the end where we start to get these shifting realities, but it's fully a function of the institution that he's in. Uh, as well as his mental illness, but but mostly the institution is what's crafting this bizarre these ex bizarre experiences he's he's having. So if you want to understand Dick's views on mental illness, I think you really ought to take on this book. Um, it is also a nice foil if you want a book to contrast with To Andrew's Dream of Electric Sheep to kind of get an earlier perspective on what Dick was thinking about androids at the time. It's it's very different ethically and morally. In Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, androids are are without emotion, without empathy. They're cruel. They're, they pluck the, the legs off spiders, right? Uh, so like precious living things. Here, the androids are, are basically, you know, they're good. You know, they might be a bit banal, but there's they, they a goodness to them anyways that Dick uh, wants to expose. And it's contrasted with the human being who is, who aren't the human beings who are mentally ill or have really dysfunctional interpersonal relations. And not just Pris here, Louis Rosen too, who has his own bizarre views. I think it's also, um, it's the only story or novel that I can think of right now where Dick takes on this question of unrequited love and and really shows it as something rather toxic. And I don't know if that was his intention. I don't get the feeling that he, he sees there's anything redeeming about Louis Rosen's attitude towards Pris, especially in the last half of the novel. But, you know, we have like the broken marriages again and again. We have the undead marriages, as I talked about, on the marriages that are over, but they still burden characters. That stuff is all in his other works. But this, this is a complete indifference of Pris to Louis Rosen's affections. And then Louis Rosen's bizarre behavior in response to that. I don't think we've seen this before in Dick's work. Maybe in his mainstream fiction. Maybe this is a theme he took up a lot in the mainstream fiction. I'm, I'll have to think about that when I, when I look at those works. Um, so for these reasons, I think We Can Build You should be considered. But I also understand why people might want to, to miss it. It doesn't really have the core science fiction elements that we come to love. It's, it's, it's got some humor, but the humor is a bit different type than, than in his other novels. Uh, a lot of the humor is based on the, like just the preposterous reality that Lincoln and Stanton are, are walking around, presumably in top hats, right? And, and looking like Abraham Lincoln, talking like Abraham Lincoln, you know, thinking they're Abe Lincoln in the modern world. I mean, that's, it's, it's kind of, it's rather hilarious. So it's got this humor, but still it's, it's a fairly bleak novel, especially when we get to the, to the, to the later half. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of provisionally recommend this novel to, to Dick fans. If you're a casual reader, it's not, the, it's not the novel I would start with, though. If I was, you know, telling someone to jump into 
to Philip Dick. Or even someone said, "What? tell me a good robot story of, of Dick Street. I wouldn't suggest this one um, because I think it, it's something, it, hel it helps if you understand what Dick's been writing about on these themes in other works. It helps make the novel a little bit more um, accessible. Um, so that's it. So as for the themes of this novel, there are, of course, many to talk about. Um, certainly at the heart of this is mental illness and the question of, of a society becoming increasingly plagued by mental illness and, and what kind of society creates that. And then tied to that is we have our best look at the institution of, of mental illness. We've seen the psychiatrists before often. We've seen mental health asylums, but they've always been in the backdrop, right? Like in Maze of Death, there's this idea that they, they're escapees from a place, you know, an asylum. Uh, Clans of Elfane Moon, they're escapees of an asylum, but the, the institution is sort of gone or they're distant from it. Here, the institution is, is very real and, and oppressive. It's, it's, it's in a few of the stories, but um, it goes beyond the, the psychiatrist-patient uh, relationship and really gets to the total institution. And this is going to be picked up in A Scanner Darkly. Uh, really, what that's the core of that story is, is the institution. So I, I think this is a really a book you got to go to if you want to understand Dick's views of institutions. And I think it feeds, in a way, to the Black Iron Prison interpretation of power that we get in Vatlas. Um, and if I think, if I think this, this, this should be compared in part to what, what Irving Goffman says about asylums in his book. So let me just, for your benefit, jump to the Wikipedia entry on this. The full name of the book was Asylums, Essays on the Condition of the Social Situation of Mental Patients and Other Inmates, published in 1961. I'm, I, I have a hard time believing Dick didn't read this book, but if, the, if he didn't read it, at the very least he was influenced by it um, through some kind of osmosis, maybe you know, the growing discussion about mental illness at the time. But um, here's what the summary we get here. Uh, quote, based on his participant observe, observation field work, uh, Goffman details his theory of the total institution, principally in the example he gives, as the title of the book indicates, mental institutions, and the process by which it takes efforts to maintain predictable and regular behavior on the part of the, both the guard and the captor, suggesting that many of the features of such institutions serve the ritual function of ensuring that both classes of people know their function and social role, in other words, of institutionalizing them. Goffman concludes that adjusting the inmates to their role has at least as much importance as curing them. In the essay, Notes on Tinkering Traits, Goffman concludes that the medicalization of mental illness and the various treatment mod modalities are offshoots in the 19th century and the Industrial Revolution, and the so-called medical model for training patients was a variation of the way trades and craftsmen of the late 19th century repaired clocks and other mechanical objects in the confines of a shop or a store, contents and routines of which remained a mystery to the customer." Unquote. So it's a fascinating book. Uh, it's really worth checking out. But um, and, and yeah, maybe here he's just hinting at it. But in A Scanner Darkly, that's the main point of that book. Uh, at least the, the second half of that. It's, it's another book in which the character ends up in an asylum, essentially. So um, mental illness institutions, really key to this story. Um, I think also key to this is this, this, the entitlement, the feeling of entitlement one has when they're in love. Or the feeling when someone f falls in love, how that emotion comes with it, a feeling of, of a right to, have, to, to possess what one loves. 
right? And this is such the such a toxic, horrible, uh, devastating aspect of, of love in, in a lot of cultures, right? Um, you know, this especially the gendered aspect of it, right? The when men feel they have a right to possess a woman because they they love them or have affection for them or they're nice to them or they've been a good friend, right? Every time a man says they've been friend zoned, they're they're kind of feeding into this entitlement idea. And it's a it's a big part of what we call toxic masculinity now. Is is this. Um, maybe not everyone out there is as bad as, as Louis Rosen, but you know, it's it's a real phenomenon out there. So uh, and Dix doesn't really explore it very much, but I think in this particular novel, he starts to. And I think we can start to think about what he would say about this t idea of toxic masculinity. Um, and this is, this is the core relationship we want to analyze what Dick would have said about it. Um, another thing, uh, the small business versus and the craftsman versus the large corporation. The, the tension between Massa and Barrows here. Barrow's not creative, just a parasite, a, a leech, the, the, uh, a real estate empire who wants to get into simulacrums to improve their real estate business, right? But they'll just poach Pris or Bundy from the actual creators, right? And who's stuck in the middle or who's left behind? It's the, the small business, the actual, the place where actual creativity takes place, where the actual simulacrums were invented uh, in Massa. That, that business seems to go nowhere, right? We don't know how that ends up. If you want to take it as a prequel for Do Android and Electric Sheep, you can imagine that, you know, the Rosen Corporation, you know, ends up successful. But as far as the novel goes, it seems it breaks apart. In fact, Maury at some point says, if Louis leaves us, if you leave us, we'll, we won't be a company anymore. We won't be a business anymore. I don't know if I believe. I think that's not true. I don't see that Louis does that much. But we're told by characters that he's indispensable to the business. Um, and without him there, the business would fall apart. But anyways, the, the victory of Barrows over the actual creative agent, I think, is, is, is key here. And Dick's always got his kind of, he's always on the side of the tinkerer, uh, the small business, the, the craftsman. Um, tied to the Barrows narrative is, is an idea about the urban, urban space. Barrows is a slumlord. Seattle is described as basically a slum. The off-world colonies are described as slums of the future. Dick does this, of course, in Martian Time Slip. That's a major theme of that novel is Mars becoming essentially a slum. So kind of this futility about urban development. Right? That, you know, like ur urban renewal or whatever is kind of where capital goes to, to die when it has nowhere really productive to go. Um, the idea of the, the just the whole the parasitic function of the rentier class um, is, is here and the devastating aspect it has on on urban development we only get the side mention of someone fighting against barrows's empire in this uh, character what was her name uh, uh, sylvia dvorak we don't really get to see where that goes but there are you know people who realize that barrows is a toxic aspect in the economy and people like him uh, Dick certainly does not seem to like the the people who the urban developer, the urban planner, or, or you know the the rentier, the slumlord. Never looked at well in his in his works. Um, of course, here we also have the ethics of of the simulacrum dealt with. It's probably actually the best forthright discussion of of is it right to enslave the simulacrum 
here. Lincoln, of course, out of self-interest, argues against it. But it's in the first half of the novel in particular, there's this conversation about, you know, who owns these? Can they be bought and sold? Uh, Dick, of course, makes one of them, Abraham Lincoln, to make this point about slavery, I think, direct. So we're thinking about slavery. So the ethics of the simulacrum. I don't think we get a clear answer here, but it's it's being debated. And, and if you want to take this as a prequel, you know, you got to say at some point after this novel, that was worked out. And it was decided that, you know, enslaving simulacrum androids is, is legitimate. We, of course, also have the frontier here. Uh, we got uh, the suggestion of an overpopulated Earth, crowded Earth, and frontier then being pioneered by, by the developer um, to profit from, but also as a, as a place to dump people. And then the fact that the, the frontiers will initially be populated by androids, so they look populated so people want to live there, is, is really, really an interesting idea. Right? You put the robots in houses first, so when people move in, they'll think, well, I got neighbors or whatever. In fact, it's all a false front. This is played with in Martian Time Slip, of course, written after this, this novel was originally penned. And then something we don't see much in Dick's work is the father-son relationship. I, I can't ever, I, I don't know of any other book of his, well, maybe Martian Time Slip has that a little bit. The, the father-son relationship, but very rare. Very rarely do we have the father-son relationship explored, but it's here, and it's it's kind of a, it's a rather nice one. We see a father who cares for his, his son, who is looking out for him. They have honest disagreements about the future of the company and things, but they're they're kind of on the same side, and they're, they're allies. And even at the end, he, he's kind of there for his son during his confinement and institutionalization. So uh, that's it. That's my thoughts on We Can Build You. Um, really uh, a fascinating novel, but not, maybe not for everyone. Maybe not uh, not uh, the one I would recommend for everyone, every Philip Dick fan, to start with anyways. So anyways, what's coming up? Well, we're um, Dick actually published nothing else in 1972, and he published nothing in 1973, as far as I know. And, and that means we jumped to 1974. 1974 was when Philip K. Dick published Full My Tears, The Policeman Said. And I think that's the only thing he published in, in that year. There may have been a couple stories uh, that he published that year. But, um, he, you know, if you know Philip Dick's life, he was dealing with stuff in 1973. Uh, maybe we'll be able to talk about that at some point in this, in this podcast. Um, Especially when we get to the Valis, Valis children, it's, it's hard to avoid. But um, my plan now is just to jump to Fool My Tears, the policeman said, and, and into 1974 and give my thoughts on that. Very, very interesting and, 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 and powerful novel. Um, one of his best from, from the 1970s, I think. I don't know if any of his 1970s novels, in my view, reach the level of his great 60s works, but uh, Fool My Tears, the policeman said, is a great one. And, and I'm going to have a, fun, a lot of fun talking about that with you. So um, that's the plan looking forward. So thanks as always for listening. In the meantime, leave your comments about what we can build you below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. I'll see you next time. To feel these changes happening in me.